We're going to be in Romans chapter 5 today, first five verses. When I was younger, I was in Colorado on a skiing vacation. Actually, I went to Colorado several times and skied, but one day we drove from Aspen down to the Royal Gorge where the Arkansas rivers cut a, about a thousand foot deep gash in the earth. There's a suspension bridge uh, stretched across that gash. And it was early in January and there was nobody else there except the bridge attendant. There was a guy that she gave some money to at the bridge. This was long ago before there was an amusement park on the site. Ours was the only car on the bridge and really the only car you could see anywhere if you did a 360. There's just nobody there, so I decided I was going to get out and walk across the bridge. And it was cool. It was cool to stand up there and look out like that. From where I was, I could look a thousand feet down to the river below. Or I could look across the river to the other side or back to where we just come, where we just come from. If I had broken out into song in the middle of that bridge, my experience would have been a good illustration of Romans chapter 5, where Paul has finished driving home his argument and has begun, as it were, singing. Romans 5 is a bridge passage spanning the theological expanse between what God has done for us in the past through Christ, that's chapters 1 through 4 of Romans, and what God is doing in us in the present through the Spirit. That's chapter 6 through 8. Paul's done arguing, and he's ready to move beyond the debate on justification. In fact, after this chapter, the noun justification does not appear again in the letter. And the verb only makes rare appearances. But in this chapter, he stands on that bridge between what God has done and what God is doing he looks back with gratitude, he looks ahead with hope, and he bursts into song. So we're going to stand on the bridge with Paul, and we're going to look back at the incredible things God has done for us, look forward to the glorious destiny that awaits us, and gaze into the bottomless depths of his love for us. Let's read the first five verses. I actually thought I'd get through verse 11 today, but it's just too good to, to move too quickly. So I'm going to take my time on this. Verses 1 through 5, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he's given us. As I mentioned, Paul has finished his argument. One way you see that is he's gone from saying you, which he did repeatedly in chapters 2 and 3, you, 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 to saying we. Standing atop the love of God, he looks back at where he's just been, and he writes, since we have been justified through faith. Now, it is important, it's hard to overstate the importance of this, to remember what it means to be justified. Misunderstandings about this have led to unnecessary confusion and endless debates over issues that Paul would have found 
meaningless. I'm sure that if we said, oh, we get to heaven and say, oh, St. Paul, I want to ask you a question about this theological debate that's raged for the last 500 years, he would say, what are you talking about? To be justified is to have your status change from unrighteous to righteous, which is the prerequisite for approval to enter God's kingdom. Paul believed that every person on earth has been born in a distant land, distant from the kingdom of God and in hostile relationship with it. That's chapters 1, verse 18. That's where it starts, 118 through chapter 3, verse 22, where he says it makes no difference. There is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one, including you and me, has the right by birth has the right status to enter God's kingdom. None of us. There is no one righteous. None with status to enter the kingdom. Not even one. We're all illegals. We're like Syrian refugees who long for something better, a better life, but whose request to enter the U.S. has been turned down. Our plot plight, like theirs, is genuinely desperate and often very sad. But we do not have legal status to live in the kingdom of God. Not knowing any better, some of us have thought we could apply for a change of status on the grounds that we're decent people. But we got rejected. We applied for kingdom resident status on the basis of our admittedly incomplete knowledge of kingdom law and our admittedly intermittent efforts to abide by it, but we were rejected. On our application, we listed all the kind things we've done for people, but we got rejected. We mentioned that our grandmother had kingdom citizenship, but that didn't help. We got rejected. Approval to live in God's kingdom is not granted for any of those reasons. Imagine a Syrian from Aleppo who thinks he ought to be allowed to come to the U.S. on the grounds that he volunteered at his mosque. And other than some embarrassing traffic tickets, he has no criminal record. The immigration official reviewing the case would look at it and say, look, that's all well and good, but... So what? Those don't qualify as grounds for entrance into the U.S. And so it is with entrance into the kingdom. Being a nice guy, trying not to hurt people, being religious even, provides no grounds for the status change that's necessary to live in the kingdom. Then what are the grounds for a status change? On what basis is a person granted admission into the kingdom? Admittance into the kingdom of God is based on one thing and one thing only. Faith in or faithfulness to. Those are two sides of the same coin. Faith in, faithfulness to the king. So Paul writes, since we have been justified, we've been granted that status change necessary to enter the kingdom through faith. This has been the argument since 116. Faith in the king is the only grounds for admittance into the kingdom. Why would you even want to be in the kingdom if you don't have faith in the king? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith as opposed to some other way, we have peace with God. We will not have peace with God because we're decent people or because we go to church 
or because we were born in the United States, or we support the United Way, or we give money to the guy on the corner of Willowbrook and Chicago Road. We will not have peace with God because God will not have peace with us until we submit to his son. Paul says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Until he is our Lord, we'll not have peace with God. Jesus is the key. Jesus is the key to all the doors in the house of God. The phrase, through our Lord Jesus Christ, is a fundamentally important one in Romans. It reminds us that our standing does not depend on what we've done, or even what we wistfully promised to be, but on what he has done and what he already is. Peace with God comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 5.1. Our boasting in God is through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 5.11. The grace that reigns through righteousness and results in eternal life comes through our Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ our Lord. That's 5.21. God's gift of eternal life is in, that's a different preposition in English, but it's exactly the same one in Greek, Christ Jesus, our Lord. The deliverance for which we thank God came through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The love of God from which nothing can ever separate us is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Every chapter in this section, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, ends with these words. In the very end of the chapter come these words, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our standing, our blessings, our hopes, are through him. We are entirely dependent on him. Through whom, there's another of those blessings we enjoy through him, through whom we have gained access, I would translate it, been introduced to, by faith into this grace in which we now stand. The person who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ stands in grace. That is, his or her request for resident status has been approved. It's been stamped grace. That person has access to the resources of the kingdom and use of its services that other people don't have, like prayer. To stand in grace is a remarkable blessing. But we not only stand in grace, we stand in it and boast in Greek, there's no break at all in this sentence. We stand in this grace and boast in the hope of the glory of God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to boast in the hope of the glory of God? It means we boast that our God will triumph. Our God wins. We are on the winning side. In our sin and rebellion, we fell short of the glory of God. And that was chapter 3, verse 23. But in Christ, God picked us up from our fall and brought us to join him in his glory. We will share his glory. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. His glory will be revealed in us. That's, or to us, rather, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It will be revealed in us, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. We will reign with him, Revelation chapter 20. We will judge angels, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
We will take charge of cities, Luke chapter 19, and be the image of God in the world that he created us to be, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We will be changed to be like him, be given a glorious body like his, Philippians chapter 3. No more sin, no more being torn apart by conflicting desires. We will be whole and we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. We boast in the hope of the glory of God because it's our hope too. The biblical promise is if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we share in his sufferings, we will also share in his glory. Now, don't miss this. The only people who hope in the glory of God are the ones who live faithfully for the king. When faithfulness to the king comes into conflict with success in the world, they choose the king. They will endure privation and persecution if necessary, but they won't forget their king or be faithless to his kingdom. It is the people who live for him in the present who hope in him for the future. A person cannot rejoice in the hope of the glory of God at the same time he's hoping for the applause of the world. It's psychologically impossible. You just can't do it. Because we must endure if we would reign, we not only rejoice in the hope of God's future glory, we rejoice in the sufferings of the present time. The word the NIV translates sufferings comes from a Greek verb that means to press, to put pressure on. If we're in step with King Jesus, we will sometimes be out of step with the world around us. If we stand for the king, we will sometimes stand against the age. There will be pressure. Pressure within the home, pressure in the workplace, pressure to compromise, pressure to agree. The pressure will be familial, it'll be social, it'll be political. We won't go looking for it, but it will find us if we stand with King Jesus. That's why we rejoice when we encounter the pressures Paul talks about. It means we're standing with Jesus. It gives us the chance to endure. And remember, if we endure we will also reign with him. Paul says that endurance or perseverance, the same Greek word, produces character. Now that word is not translated that way anywhere else in the New Testament. Elsewhere it is translated as proof. That's what it means, proof. Which is why some versions translate it proven character. It's the word that Paul uses when he writes to the Corinthians. This is in the last chapter after a long conflict with the Corinthians. And he says to them, when I come back, I will give you proof that Christ is speaking through me. It's the same word that we have here. In this verse, what does it mean when he writes that suffering produces proof? Proof of what? Proof that we're really kingdom people and not imposters. Because there are imposters. Jesus warned about them on multiple occasions. Paul warned about them on multiple occasions. Peter warned about them. Jude warned about them. 
There are people who live among us and who profess faith. Faith in the king who aren't loyal to the kingdom. People who serve, probably unbeknownst to themselves, the prince of darkness, not the king of light. The world's values clash with God's. The world has fallen and it's still falling. It's filled with pain and suffering and injury and trouble. And Christians, like everyone else, and sometimes like no one else, will suffer. Sometimes they'll suffer because he or she is determined to be true to Christ. It's one of Jesus' ironclad promises. You can take it to the bank. In this world, you will have trouble or tribulation. The word is exactly the same word that we have translated as sufferings here. Persevering. And when I say that, what I mean is remaining faithful to Jesus. That's what it means to persevere in this context. It's not just getting, I survived the trouble. It's I trusted God in the trouble and I didn't give up. Persevering through those sufferings provides proof that we're God's people. And at the same time, it changes us into the kind of people of whom God can be proud, the people he calls family. Persevering through suffering does something nothing else does. It kills our hope in this age while it fills us with hope in God. It's the only way we ever get over the stubborn, false hope that we're going to find fulfillment in this world without God. That's a lie from which only perseverance through suffering can set us free. When Karen and I first moved here in 1988, we inherited a beautiful garden. This gig- it was like a farm. I couldn't believe it. Um, and it was ready for picking. We came here in August, and we started picking beans the day we got here, I think. We canned tomatoes and beans. We ate sweet corn, and there was peppers and the best watermelons you've ever tasted. We kept that garden for a couple of years. Uh, and then it was just, it really, it was too much for us to keep the garden and do the work we were doing. Um, but there was one thing in the garden when we got here that we didn't want, and that was horseradish. After three years, when we gave up the garden and, and returned it to grass, we had no more beans, no more corn, no more tomatoes, but we still had horseradish. <laughs> we couldn't get rid of it. It spread across the lawn. We found it 50 yards from where the garden had been. And we pulled it up over and over again, and it came back for years. It, we couldn't get rid of it. That's like this false belief that we can find fulfillment in this world apart from God. That is a stubborn weed in the garden of our belief system. We can pull it up in one place say, I don't believe that, but it'll return in another. The only thing that can kill it is faithful endurance to Jesus through suffering. See, God will use even our suffering, especially the suffering we endure with confidence in him, for our good, our great good. Nothing on earth can stop him from doing it. Dallas Wooler was in South Africa, I'm sure to speak, and he, he was attending a, a, a church service, which was quite memorable. Just before the church service began, somebody told him that a house around the corner 
had been burned to the ground because the man who lived there was, sus was suspected to be a thief. And, and a week before that, the guy said, a tornado had cut through the township and it ripped apart 50 homes and killed five people. And, and on the night before, the night before the church service, a gang hounded down a 14-year-old member of the church's Sunday school and stabbed him to death. When the pastor got up and the service began, his opening prayer was something like this. Lord, you are the creator and the sovereign. But why did the wind come like a snake and tear our roofs off? Why did a mob cut short the life of one of our own children when he had everything to live for? Over and over again, Lord, we are in the midst of death. And he went on praying like this. And as he prayed, the congregation began to moan and sigh this terrible groaning. But when he finished his prayer, the whole congregation, without prompting, very slowly began to sing. At first quietly, and then louder and louder, they sang and they sang song after song of praise. Praise to a God who in Jesus has plunged into the very worst to give us hope of the very best. In their singing, they were giving voice to their hope in the glory of God. Afterwards, Willard, thinking about that, commented, Christian hope isn't about looking around at the state of things now and trying to imagine where it's all going. It's about breathing now the fresh air of the ending, tasting the spices and sipping the wine of the feast to come. See, God is preparing a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And when we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, we get a foretaste of that feast. How can we sustain hope when we're suffering? How can we be sure that this isn't just wishful thinking, a fool's paradise, escapism of the worst sort? We can endure hardship with hope and without shame. That's what that word disappointed means. Hope does not disappoint us. It means the hope doesn't shame us. Our hope will never shame us. We can endure because God, verse 5, has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. Boy, we're going to see more about that in the next three chapters. The God who gave us his only son, that's chapters 1 through 4, has also given us his spirit, chapters 6 through 8. Paul stands on this bridge between what God has done and what God is doing, and he exalts in the love of God. All right, let's wrap this up. There is no peace with God apart from faith in slash faithfulness to his son. We have peace with God only if we have faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus introduces us into a place of grace and gives us hope for the future. Hope for the future, but troubles in the present. And yet we can endure those troubles without losing faith because God has given us his spirit. It's impossible to overstate the importance of that. None of us can be Christians. We can't live the Christian life without the spirit. 
In this passage, Paul talks about peace with God. It's important to realize that's something different from the peace of God. Peace with God is an objective state. The peace of God is a subjective experience. Many times people crave the subjective experience who don't give a thought to the objective state. But experiencing the peace of God depends on having peace with God. And you will never have peace with God until you have faith in the Son of God, the King of the Kingdom, Jesus Christ. If you don't have faith in him, I encourage you to trust him now. And let me be blunt. Experiencing the peace of God in life's trials only happens when our hope is in the glory of God, not in the false hope of fulfillment without God in the world. You want peace with God and hope for the future? Then live for Jesus now. These blessings and all the blessings of the kingdom, all the resources of the kingdom, are reserved for people who have joined God's side. The only way to experience the Bible's promises in your life, the promise of peace of God, for example, is to serve Jesus in this age. Otherwise, you'll think the promises aren't true. It's not enough to reserve a room with him in the next age, you need to serve him in this age. The promises do not apply to you unless you're living for him. There will be no proof that the promises hold true or that you are true until you're living as a servant of the king and an agent of the kingdom. And then you'll have plenty of proof of both. All right, let's pray. God, speak into us what you want us to remember. Let us hear your voice in our hearts, in our minds. In Jesus' name.